Welcome to the latest episode of Do You Know What? My name is Leo Mindal. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined as ever on my virtual couch with my two co-hosts. I'm Rebecca Singham-Knight. Welcome to Do You Know What? Hi, Leo. Hi, Rebecca. I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginsky. I'm the CEO for Liberal Judaism. And as always, unbelievably delighted to be back in the podcast studio. The sun is out. It's uh, the middle of April when we're recording this. It was a bit cold earlier in this week, but I actually think we are finally moving metaphorically and physically into the sun. I had a glass of wine with a good friend in a pub garden on Monday afternoon, and it was one of the best days of my life. I'm not going to lie. It was so nice. Was it snowing? No, it was lovely. It snowed in the morning, but it was we sat in the sun. It was actually warm. You would never have known it had snowed that morning. It's amazing how these small things are coming back into our lives. And then we're going, oh, look, we can do things that we couldn't do uh, three weeks ago. And we're celebrating them. And things we took for granted, you know, two years ago, things like that, we just took for granted. And I wonder how long it's going to be before we start taking them for granted again. And I kind of hope we never do. I think when you have a, you're taken away from something, you see the beauty of something from a different eyes that you haven't seen before. But in this last two years or last year and a half, Rebecca, your garden in particular has just completely changed, hasn't it? It's it's evolved quite nicely. Yeah. And um, this week I've been obsessively bringing my seedlings in every night because we've had frost. This is how sad I am. I'm bringing my seedlings in and I recently as I think I mentioned on a previous podcast I recently planted a new magnolia tree which is in beautiful blooms at the moment so the nights it's been frosted I've been going out and literally wrapping up my tree in fleece that is how exciting my life has become it's actually an interesting thing the magnolia you know it's there it looks beautiful and it disappears again and it's gone it's so literally and, one, two weeks a year. And then it comes into lovely leaves. So it's, mm. uh, I didn't know we were going to go into, <laughs> into, <laughs> into our, our side of this. Although actually talking about bringing this around is that the Shnatis, uh, young people who are due to spend a year in Israel, have finally got out last week. Uh, they're in lockdown at the moment in Israel. Uh, they're due to go to Latan next week, an eco kibbutz, where they will be spending a lot of time out in the in the wild and, and dealing with dates. Um, I assume, Charlie, you've been out there? I've not only been to Lotan. Um, I was on Yahel, which is the next door neighbour to uh, Lotan. So the other progressive kibbutz in the desert in the Arava in the south of Israel. Um, but I also then went to Lotan with a gap year student. So not the Schnatnetzer, but actually a group called uh, Carmel, which was run joint with Leo Beck in Haifa and were American kids. Actually, it was a really different experience being with American. American gap year students um, than it was being with uh, British students. But it was an amazing time on Lotan. Um, but my overwhelming memory of those kids who are now no longer kids, in fact, two of them are now uh, rabbis and uh, other leaders in the American Jewish community was uh, a young man called Herschel. He could only have been called Herschel, who used to say to me, Charlie, I've got a problem. That was generally the whole theme of my year with with that group who had never done washing before or cooked before or really quite differently, had never been out of their home state before. So unlike our young people who do grow up traveling around a lot more, because of 
the nature of American life in the distance don't tend to leave America. And suddenly here they were not only leaving America for the first time, some of them, but going to be in Israel for a year in places like Lotan, but also in Haifa. So uh, Charlie, I've Got a Problem was uh, really usually about a missing sock or not knowing how to catch a bus uh, or all of those kind of growing up uh, maturity issues. Um, so that's my overwhelming memory of Lotan and, and that So year. it's going to be great for the Schnatties who are going to get to Lotan. I think it's next week that they're going to get there and, and experience it. My daughter, when she was out there, it was the highlight of her time out in Israel and is the one place that she always says that she wants to go back to uh, because of the fact that it's just an, a hugely welcoming environment that they've built down there. And also it's very close to being involved in what happens around you so that you see the nature, you also see uh, the borders because it's right on the Jordanian border. Um, and they just have a great experience out there. Um, Rebecca, are you still planning to go out this year? October is the latest dead, uh, the latest booking. Yeah. So as you know, I was originally supposed to be there last August. I then rebooked till last October. I then rebooked till now, in fact, actually originally. And then I've rebooked now until October, which is just after my adult bat mitzvah, actually. So I'll be having my adult bat mitzvah on the Saturday and then going out on the Thursday. Before we talk about that, we have to bring in our guest. Now, this is of a course. really, really great guest. I've had some experience of dealing with uh, this guest on a number of things in the past. And we'd like to welcome Julie Siddiqui to our podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I feel honoured and excited and all of that all at the same time. Despite the fact that Leo introduced you with the term dealing with. <laughs> I'll let him off. I'll let him off. I'll, I'll, explain. I'll explain. I get I get a request from Charlie to say, I know this really wonderful Muslim lady who needs some help with a podcast or with a live stream. Um, can you help out? Okay, Charlie, when is it? Tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so you need you mean I need to set this all up in 24 hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got loads of time, <laughs> loads of time. You know, I normally only give you four hours notice. What are you complaining about? And so, Julie, can you explain about your uh, live sessions that you run? Yeah, so actually I haven't been doing them for a while, but I did some last year to sort of try it out on Facebook Live and loved it. And Charlie was definitely one of my favourite guests and we really just had a conversation about all sorts of things and could have probably gone on for another kind of three hours and talked about you know we had a rough plan but then ended up talking about all sorts of things and I think yeah it was it was all women um mostly Muslim women women from different you know parts of the country different things that they wanted to share and Julie, I love you're it. really underplaying yourself I think that while I'm sure many of us know, know who you are and may have heard you on Thought for the Day and all the national um, media stuff that you're involved in. Just in case there is somebody out there who hasn't hasn't heard you speak before, hasn't heard you in conversation, just tell them a little bit about yourself. But also then Thrive was this incredible initiative. And some of the guests, I mean, it's very kind of you to say that I was one of your favourites, but you had some really, really amazing guests on there. And there was a real ideology behind what you were trying to do with that programme. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I've been, so I've been Muslim since 1995, came from a family that wasn't religious and gr gradually sort of in my early 20s, my whole world opened up when I started working and realised that it wasn't 
wasn't just my little bubble in Surrey that I'd grown up in. Actually, there's a whole world out there of people from different backgrounds and all of that. So that's a very quick way of saying I then became Muslim in 1995. I married about a year or so later. Um, and at that point, pretty much got involved in kind of community organizing Early on, I started working with Muslim women. Um, we set up a charity, which I chaired for 10 years, um, did all sorts of great stuff. Still have very, very fond memories of those early days, living and learning, figuring it all out, working out what we were supposed to be doing, set up a charity. And then I got more involved in kind of interfaith work, more in other places nationally, I guess. Um, and then about kind of 10 years or so ago, my on my radar really was really the idea that Muslim Muslims and Jews in Britain don't really have much relationship and that everything ends up being framed around, I guess, what's what's happening in Israel. And, you know, I felt there was a lot more to do. So for the last 10 years or so, I've been exploring that, making friends and doing, honestly, some of the most amazing work and meeting some of the most amazing people. And now I've kind of gone almost full circle back to working quite specifically more with Muslim women still enjoying and doing all the other stuff. But actually, I really want to focus now on Muslim women. So Together We Thrive, of which the lives that I did were a part of, is really trying to link Muslim women better together, give them platforms to speak, but also really to show each other and, I guess, society that Muslim women really want to have a voice of their own. We, you don't need to keep speaking for us, at us, about us. Everyone has an opinion about Muslim women, what they should be wearing, what they shouldn't, what they should be doing, saying, whatever. You know, all of the Muslim community problems end up on the shoulders of Muslim women. So, you know, for me, it's about kind of ch changing that narrative and giving Muslim women other people that they can connect with. Uh, and it's working really well. What can I say? It's, uh, it's very exciting. Can I ask a really difficult question? Yeah, please do. And maybe it's the wrong question, but okay. I hear this about, really feel it very deeply about this idea about giving Muslim women their own voices. And I wonder whether you feel like you had privileged access because of being a convert or having been a white Muslim woman that actually somehow you were the more acceptable face to be able to have the conversation that people felt they could they could approach you in a different way? No, it's a great question. And I think that people often do think that somehow there's a privilege, I guess a white privilege, if we want to say it really like that. Uh, but I can honestly say, I certainly don't see it like that, but I can honestly say that there are many Muslim women converts who are actually quite vulnerable, in fact, and sort of at the other end of the spectrum, because sometimes their families might reject them. They might not figure out what part of the community they they feel part of and so actually it isn't just an automatic kind of ticket necessarily and if anything I always try and say to people don't put us converts men or women on any kind of pedestal because honestly it's not helpful <laughs> and you know we're all really in it together so from a Muslim perspective we believe that when a person becomes a Muslim their previous sins are wiped clean right so it's quite a big thing but thereafter we're all in it together. So, you know, this idea that, oh, you're so lucky that you've had it. Well, actually, we're all kind of in the world trying to figure it all out now together. And it's not really about any of that. So I think that for me, it's been, it, there is no doubt that I feel that I have an understanding of people beyond, say, a Muslim bubble. Actually, a lot of which is because of my own family, my own upbringing, and how I can relate to people. I think thereafter, because, because, but there are other Muslim converts, women or men, who actually, if anything, sometimes want to reject all of that and almost become 
very, very Muslim. <laughs> and that isn't always helpful either. So we've got all of that going on. And I think that it's really about more, I think in my case, it's more about my own personality. My DNA, I guess now, is really working with people and trying to do stuff that maybe other people don't want to do. And I just love meeting people. So I think it's more to do with that than it is necessarily automatically a convert thing. Because I know so many converts who are not involved in any of this work and don't want to be and run a mile from it and just live their life and you know get on with things. So I think it's really a variety but it's more to do with personality and what I love doing I think more than anything else that's how I see it anyway there's always this issue about people who change because you can argue and sit there and say well you were born something this and the other but actually I think I have far more respect for people who make a change in their life and adopt something that they want to do now that in the discussion that you're having there Julie you're talking about your change in your religious status and where you went and where you went on that journey but you also have exactly the same argument at times with people they identify with their with their gender and make decisions and I am so enamored and proud of people that actually make those decisions because you know you have to sit there and go this is me and when you see it you go well done you and I'd like to support them how does that come across in stuff I mean Charlie you've had to deal with some of this in the past so I think there's a difference between all of this in terms of choice and what people think that they or people feel they were born as um and but that said, often when we sit on the bet din, we will meet people. That's the the board that uh, that puts the stamp on people's conversion process. We meet people who say, "I was born with a Jewish soul," mm. actually, and that that becoming Jewish was. Uh, it was always part of of who they felt that they were and that is a thing I'm absolutely sure that that's a thing and at the same time I also we talk a lot about all of us being Jews by choice because actually as as Julie said I think also with um, people within Islam you have a choice about the way that that is part of your life and opting in especially for us living in secular Britain or multi-religion Britain we do have lots of choices about where does religion pay a part in your life and so I think they're both ends of those spectrum that people can feel that actually they were always meant to be Jewish or Muslim or that was you know, in their kishkas, in their soul. But they're also, all of us also have a choice to be that and to opt in. And that sense of activism, however that plays out, I think is also a really important recognition. And I personally feel both of those. I feel both that Judaism's in my, in my sense of identity, but that I also choose it every day. So do you find with Julie, I mean, Coming back to that question that Charlie was asking, you know, there, there's acceptance within and there's acceptance outside. Do you see a difference in those, how people treat you internally or externally? Or is that those things just washed over now? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> there are lots of Muslims who don't like me or what I stand for, what I do and make it very clear. So there isn't a kind of ticket that I have that says that everybody likes me but at all and in fact I received a message today that someone forwarded on and someone had put a very very horrible comment about me online somewhere so it's it much more ends up being about ideas and what I'm wanting to do so for example if I'm calling stuff out around gender inequality that stuff you know can get people going because as it does in every part of society because it's about challenging power it's about challenging the status quo 
I just wanted to add on actually what to what Charlie just said just now about the, the converting and whether it's how you've always been. And so two things came to mind for that for me. One was so a, a convert friend of mine uh, was asked on a panel recently what converts, Muslim converts are always asked because everyone wants to know, the Muslims want to know, you know, what was it that made you convert kind of thing? That question, we always get asked that. And she actually said, you know, I don't even really like the question because similarly to what you've just said, Charlie, actually everybody who's Muslim and you're saying Jewish and others could say the same, we're making a choice all the time about whether we continue to be in this thing or not and what that even looks like and where we are on the spectrum and how much do we engage with our community or is it personal or whatever. So that's one thing. It's, it's definitely something that people almost put us in a separate category, but we just want to be part of the thing. The other thing to say here uh, is that Muslims believe that Everybody is born a Muslim. Muslim meaning, because the word Muslim means sub submitting to God. Actually, the word convert, some people use the word revert. I don't like the mm -hmm. word revert, but they will say you're a revert. And if you ever see that, it's because people are saying you've reverted back to what you were anyway. When you were born, you're born with a fitra, a natural a, a soul that's natural, and you're going back to that. <laughs> and so that in itself, you, you can imagine, is interesting for people who aren't Muslim in particular, <laughs> who think, oh, okay, so you think that I was also a Muslim before, and what does that even mean? So that's partly why I don't like the word revert, because yeah. I just think that doesn't sit right with people. I'd, I'd never heard that before, Julie. That's fascinating. Um, but just going back to what you said about how some people don't like what you do. Um, and horrible to hear about, you know, what people say about you online. And I'm sure we'll, we can come and talk about that in more detail. Is that made worse, do you think, because you're a convert? And apologies if that's not the right way to put it. Do you think that's worse? Or do you think it's more to do with what you do and who you speak up for? and less to do with the fact that you weren't born Muslim? Or is it a bit of both? I think it's probably more to do with gender than okay. me being white. Okay, uh, interesting. And so it, it falls very much into that category that a lot of women find themselves in when they mm. speak out against whatever. And in that sense, women have that in common. You know, the more hate stuff online directed at women um, than it is men they yeah. say and so and that doesn't surprise me so I think it's probably more to do with that some people may then want to throw in the kind of you know who does she think she is white privilege card yeah. which they do do and if like, the whole conversation around re race and all of that for all of us in the Muslim uh, communities at the moment is also interesting because actually from a very much from a faith teaching perspective everybody is equal in reality, <laughs> there are different levels of that. And there is racism amongst Muslims with each other. So, you know, black Muslims will say that they are kind of, you know, the lowest on the pecking order in terms of how they're made to feel. And actually, if you imagine a, a black Muslim woman who wears a headscarf, she's in she's got all the layers there of trying to navigate within the Muslim community setting, but also wider society as well. So I think it's probably more to do with gender than that. And then people will just throw that in now when they want to, because it just adds to their argument, I guess. Some people will have seen the campaign to make misogyny a hate crime. And um, one of the interesting things when uh, we were discussing it within liberal Judaism was to see the absolute crossover 
and link between uh, misogyny and anti-Semitism, that it was certainly our women rabbis who got the predominance of the abuse. And it is, it's that cross section that you get the, um, as you talked about, the and this, but the starting place being uh, misogyny. I think that all of us who are vocal women online, that when we look at the abuse that we get, and it may be about something completely different, that when you analyse the language, misogyny plays an absolute part in every single piece of that or that's my experience anyway so recently you might have you will have seen the re-emergence of the conversation around the cartoons of prophet muhammad and the school in batley and the kind Mm. of reaction to that is like a whole topic of its own of course but i actually put a just a very simple post on my Facebook, just to say basically, loud, angry men, can you basically go home um, because you're not helpful? And just kind of left it at that. What I hadn't realized, so I put it on there. Uh, about three hours later, I went back. This is my own profile, which I can choose, you know, each post, public or, or just or just friends. And I hadn't realized that it was public and hadn't thought it through. So about three hours later, I went back in just to see what was what and see if anyone had commented and whatever. And they were one after the other after the other, very aggressive, nasty things from people that I didn't recognize. All men, by the way, with due respect, Leo, but they were all men. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, what's going on? Who are these people? Like, I don't have them on my Facebook profile because my profile is, is, is my friends only in that sense. And I realized, wow, it was like an orchestrated thing that they had done, like a pile on, as they say. Horrible, uh, nasty stuff because they, I challenged that. And like, so I basically deleted all of them. I pushed them all off and remade it into a private thread and then explained it to the people that were on there. But it had already been too late. Already one, some of them had shared it and then on their own post made it into something very nasty, some of which was very anti-Semitic because I work with the Jewish community. So they made it then... Oh, and here he is, by the way, don't forget, she's the one who works with the Zionist lobby and all that stuff. Just so I understand, Julie, was the attacks coming from outside of your community or inside of your community? Muslims, Muslim men um, who think that that's how they need to behave. It's really fascinating that we end up in both religions, that everybody seems to hate us, but we seem to hate ourselves even more at times. And you're like, why why do we end up having as many arguments internally? And, and Charlie and I have to deal with this and Rebecca has to deal with it uh, there as well, that we end up dealing with people who in theory should be on your side of it, yeah. but they think that that gives them a literally the green light to actually attack even more but in this in this case that julie's describing and again julie sorry to hear that i mean it's just vile Mm. but it's it's the gender thing it's the the fact the fact that you know both julie and the people saying these things are in the same religion they they are seeing themselves as i guess men first and trying to you know stamp their authority over what what women should and shouldn't be able to say i'm assuming i have to just admit i am i do follow julie on facebook i am actually one of her friends but i didn't post the thing it wasn't me it wasn't me (laughs) i can't imagine leo you're (laughs) we're not saying all men are like this obviously hashtag not all men (laughs) no we don't want to go there yeah but it hasn't scared you 
Julie has it because um, I also am friends with you on Facebook and there's been another recent post about um, your experience as a woman in the uh, Muslim community. Can you tell us a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Let me just say actually that the the comment that someone sent me today was about that incident that I just mentioned and the comment that the person put is she is a kafira apostate. I mean, it's like, so Kafir is basically an unbeliever. So he's basically an apostate is someone who's left the religion. So he's saying that that's what I am. So it's just nasty language. That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And just to say, I don't actually use Twitter for this reason, because everyone who talks about Twitter talks about this stuff. And I just decided a long time ago, however many people, including my husband, say, you have to get on Twitter. You really need to get your voice on Twitter. And I'm like, I don't want to do Twitter. Please don't make me do Twitter because I just don't want to deal with this stuff. And Facebook, I found my place there and I can do lots of stuff with it. And I've just delved into Instagram, which is like a whole other weird world of its own. Anyway, the question about what I did recently was I, I've been listening to talking about and delving into the issues around gender inequality in Muslim communities pretty much since I've been in the Muslim community myself and seeing stuff. And what happened recently was, so so just to say that there are a couple of thousand mosques in Britain, and we don't have the exact figures, but it's something like a third of, perhaps a quarter of mosques in Britain don't even have a space for women to pray. Now, bear in mind that from a teaching perspective, Islamic perspective, the um, obligation, as it were, on praying is the same for men and women. And so to not have a space even for women to pray in the mosque just doesn't add up on any (laughs) level whatsoever. And so what happened this week was that I found out that my local mosque that I've been going to for many years um, had decided, using COVID as an excuse slash reason, that they weren't going to be giving women a space for them to pray in the mosque during Ramadan. So we have special evening prayers that we say at the mosque during Ramadan every day. And my local mosque had decided only men, using health and safety and all sorts of other things like that as their reason for doing it. And I was so angry and upset when I found out. I then waited till I calmed down a bit. (laughs) Then I decided I'm going to do a video. It wasn't an easy decision um, because these things are difficult, you know, to talk about publicly, washing your dirty linen in public, here she goes again, all that kind of stuff. I knew that would happen. But I felt to myself, okay, here's me on the receiving end of this, and I need to speak about this. I need to actually do what other women are too frightened to do, which is to talk about this stuff publicly and take this agenda forward. So I did a video, five minutes, and I put it online and I shared it through my WhatsApp, etc. And actually, it's gone nuts online uh, amongst the Muslim, in the Muslim sort of space, I guess you could say, plus elsewhere as well. But thousands and thousands and thousands of views and shares and all of that uh, because it's really hit a nerve you know and I think we all know about storytelling it's powerful and when someone tells a personal story that's what kind of works that's what we're talking about here so I've had women messaging me from literally all over the country sharing their horrible stories of how they've been treated badly or discriminated against not just Ramadan and COVID, but just generally. We are shining lights under this. And I had this discussion with Charlie many times. We shine lights under things which were accepted or were not accepted is maybe not the right word, but were, were permitted because people didn't actually stand up and say something. And what you're talking about is very, very interesting. There was um, 
uh, I'm involved in a, a survey that's happening at the moment about various different uh, religions and how uh, COVID has affected the prayers. And, and exactly, literally to the word of what you've just said there, Julie, uh, they did a survey of Orthodox women and uh, they turned around and they did, uh, we, we saw this case study and they showed a picture. The Orthodox women have to go up the back outside normally, but what they ended up doing in this time is they, they because of the, because the rooms have to be aired. They've opened all the windows upstairs. The men are downstairs. They're okay. They can pray. The women are basically sitting in Arctic freezing conditions at the back. Uh, they can't see anything because they've now moved everybody back, et cetera, et cetera. So even if they go to pray in a synagogue, they ended up literally seeing the back of a balcony. They can't hear anything because nobody could chant or anything. And they're sitting in the freezing cold. And it's like, and that is supposedly um, acceptable in an orthodox environment. I don't think it's just about religion. I think that what we've seen during COVID, even though we keep hearing that COVID ha is democratic, that everybody's affected, it's actually not true. It's not. I mean, it's it's such a false publicity because what COVID has done is to grow the gaps in society, and where there were certain areas where women had you know, in a, in a, um, to be kind, had a different role. So let's say that's been used as a, as a way to exploit them out of the picture. And the same is true of uh, poorer people in society, yeah. those with um, who don't have access to the same levels of education, to housing. That's the great tragedy of when somebody talks about the democratization of COVID. It's actually the opposite and it is painting a false story about what's happening. And I don't want to dismiss what Julie's saying at all about the religious spaces during uh, COVID or what Leo's saying. But I think it is part of this. And I think as women, we've got to be really vocal about this because we are one of the groups of society that... Um, are, are, even though we're not the minority, we're, we're in a position of yeah, being a minority. 51% of, of the population in the world are women. And it's always seen as a minority in certain circumstances or treated as a, as a silent well, Because we're the minority, minority in power, right? So yeah. there's the minority in power. And when you're the minority in power, that means things like Julia's referring to are able to happen. Because if you're not on the board... So the question of the, of the thing that you've brought to light which is well done you is are you now getting attacked by people on which who who is complaining about what you're doing i haven't seen too much I, i've mainly seen people thanking me or, or more importantly sharing their stories privately or in the public so i haven't actually seen a lot i know there will be people who will be really unhappy with me doing it so publicly because they don't want to see it and hear it i think honestly Deep down, most people, men and women, when they actually think about it, they know that I'm right mm. because we cannot keep on acting like this. And, you know, for us as Muslims, the teachings of Prophet Muhammad are, peace be upon him, are, you know, the most important part of how we figure out how we live our life. And all of the precedent from his time is all there for women to be treated the same as men when it comes to worship. What happens, of course, is that people take sayings that he said and then they take the other saying that was said and that one becomes more popular than this one because this one was very categoric. Do not stop women coming to the mosque. Very clear. The one here that says women are better praying at home 
it was either weak in terms of a saying or it was because of a specific circumstances. But funny enough, this one, women are better off praying at home, is the one that everybody knows about. This one, do not stop women coming to the mosque, <laughs> is conveniently kind of like put to the side. And it's that kind of education and awareness raising and all of that that I want to change. And men absolutely know that that is the case. And so for me to be doing it, but we, I need men too to go to their mosque and say, I'm sorry, what is this? You cannot continue like this any longer. That kind of <laughs> male power has to come into the equation here in terms of privilege. We talk about the word privilege and please use that. So I've had for the first time really good men who really care about this stuff actually saying to me, what can I actually do now? And we, I've never had that before. Julie, I, I was just about to ask before you said that, how much real change have you seen um, in the last, I guess, 20, 30 years since you've been sort of actively involved in the community? Um, and therefore, with that in mind, how optimistic and positive are you for the next say 10, 20 years in terms of the changes that you want to see in the Muslim community? Yeah, great question. So look, I would say nowhere near enough change in the last 20 years, which is what's mm. frustrating, which is kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing now and kind of going all out because I think, well, how much longer are we going to just nudge forward very, very okay. small amounts? In terms of how optimistic I am, I'm very optimistic for the next 10 years and very excited. That's partly because I'm an annoying optimist, <laughs> one of those people that people think, oh, for God's sake, why do you have to be so optimistic? And so many of my women friends who kind of joined this, I guess, movement when I did 20 years ago are now tired and saying to me, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm done now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We're just getting started. I feel like Gloria Steinem, you know, is one of my <laughs> heroines in life because she will still be doing it at 90. Yeah, yeah. Right? She's still in the thing. So I think to myself, I'm really optimistic and I can see, and even in the last few days, I feel like, the winds of change are coming. I'm not expecting a Ramadan miracle. I'm not expecting no. a silver bullet's going to deal with it. But I do feel that in, in a number of things, not just this, that things are moving in the right direction. You know, there's a lot to be optimistic about in the Muslim scene. And I'm, you know, I am optimistic of what is to come. But, you know, there's a lot to do. What can I say? There's a lot to do. And, you know, part of my joy of honestly working with the Jewish community, one of them, there's been many, has been, you know, seeing the community organizing, the way things are done, how things happen. I mean, I love that. And, you know, it, it's really something that Muslims can really learn from and work with and grow with and develop along the same lines but different mm -hmm. you know, and if people could just get over the idea that they can't work with the Jewish community because of Israel then there's so much that we can do together you know it's frustrating for me in that sense but I think even that will hopefully shift the Jewish community often feel like they can't work with each other because of Israel to be fair yeah and look the other thing I say to people is look of course they have you know challenges I've seen the, the, the infighting in, in the Jewish community right I mean it's sometimes it's worse than what I see in the Muslim communities in its own way so you know I get it it's, I'm not saying it's a it's, it's a rosy picture anywhere it's all messy isn't it all of it but I just think there's so much that we can all do together when Ed Kessler was on the program he said to us that um, he had this conversation with a Catholic priest who used to tell him he'd read the Jewish Chronicle. I heard it. I heard said, it, was it was terrible. Why did you read the Jewish Chronicle? And he said, because it tells me that, you know, 
It's everybody's uh, got the same <laughs> issues. We've had a very interesting 12 months, not only about COVID, but for us, we've seen from our side the starts of this Abrahamic rocks, which is the normalization of the, the relationships between uh, Israel and some of the other uh, Islamic countries. That's had a huge news following in our side. Has that had any impact and interest on on the other side uh nowhere near as much i don't think um it's interesting because um when it when the uae stuff sort of first happened i was actually doing a, a talk in a jewish i think one of the synagogues had invited me to speak and i was asked about it and there was definitely a sense of hope and all of that and i said i get it i mean i understand why there would be that from but i don't first of all the conversations aren't really happening in the same way amongst muslims here interestingly but also there is just always a word of caution about <laughs> what that what it all even means you know and things run so deep that we have to just be realistic about the change that will happen. But it's very interesting that you asked me because the conversations that I've seen in both are very different. I think there's just so much unease, lack of information, mis- sort of mistrust, I guess, but mm. from Muslims towards that part of the world. In fact, both in terms of what people think of, for example, the UAE or the, those parts of the world and what people think of Israel. And, you know, there's a whole strong sentiment there from people here, Muslims here. And so it's quite complicated, but I hope that people can just open up a bit, at least, and think about what this can mean. And I always see these things as positive because I think it's got to be a good step in the right direction compared to what we've seen before. And so in that sense, I feel hopeful. But yeah, the level of conversations about it have been much less among Muslims than they have with the Jewish community here, I think is safe to say. I think it's um, really interesting to think about interfaith dialogue in that context. So I've been doing a course with CCJ, with the Council of Christians and Jews on Israel-Palestine relations. And um, that's been going, I mean, not that specific course, but that conversation has been happening for a long time now. It's part of CCJ's conversation material and also has been happening between Christians and Jews on shared trips to Israel and Palestine and that conversation. And even then it's really tricky, right? It's really tricky. I found it personally really hard, not actually because of the kind of geopolitical stuff, but because of the personal connection stuff and actually how do you get to grips with having some of those conversations. But I wonder whether some of it is that we're not at that place yet between Muslims and Jews in terms of our interfaith dialogue. I mean, the interfaith dialogue between Christians and Jews has got a lot a, a lot longer history yeah. and that we're still in that kind of formation point. However well some people are doing it, you've got an amazing group with Nisan yeah. Hashim, but yeah. it's still formative. It's still in that, like, let's work out what we have in common and, you yeah. know, how we break bread together and those things. And actually, we're not at the point in our relationship of having the difficult conversations and yeah. Israel is possibly the most difficult conversation and we, we don't yet have the, the language to be able no. to have it. So we can't even get to the UAE bit because we're not even there in the, how do you feel about Israel? How do, what is it? Or Palestine and what does that mean to either of us? Even you and I who... I have had conversations. We haven't had that conversation. It's been mentioned in things that we've had. 
but there is that I think of the place that we're at in terms of Muslim Jewish dialogue I find that there has been a big separation in the past for various different reasons that the the two religions which have a huge amount in common are ended up for alien differences we've been actually separated in different areas you know we we ended up in, in the Jewish environment in ghettos you know you ended up in other areas where we're just separated and you suddenly look at each other and it, it's amazing sometimes Sometimes when I sit at places when I've been in Israel or I've been in the UK when I've been at places and you're going can you really tell me the difference at this I mean the language is different but the everything else that's happening in front of you is the same experience the same way of acting the same way of of communicating the same vibrancy and it's like it's like somebody said you're not allowed to play with these people and you're like but why i mean you've said it julie you that you've experienced and you've been in a number of synagogues and i know you've had that experience do you feel that what you've done is being replicated with other people or do you think there is still that barrier i mean look there's still loads of ways to go i think I've seen in the last 10 years definitely a shift. Um, Nisar Nashim, we set up really to work with women. So Nisar and Nashim mean women in Hebrew and Arabic. You know, it has been amazing because what we say to the women is don't start off with Israel. Like point A, if you're going to start with Israel, it ain't going to work. Like, just take it from us. It doesn't work. So, you know, we've created and, and helped with the women create groups around the country. So you're right in terms of the geography is an issue in itself because the Muslim communities are much more spread out, larger community in lots of different areas. The Jewish community tends to be in areas, you know, there's certain areas, small communities. And actually what we've tried to do is find a group in areas even where there are only a few Jews like Coventry or, or some you know some of these places we seem to have had groups all over the country which is amazing each group co-chaired by a Jewish and a Muslim woman yeah. and we say to them don't start with Israel not saying it's not important because it's important for both of course it is very important but if you start with that you're not going to build the trust and the friendship. So we put friendship right at the heart of it in a way that I haven't seen any other Muslim and Jewish stuff done before. It's often been more dialogue or like academic or, you know, study or great. None of that is bad. But actually, what about the friendship stuff? What about actually getting to know your Jewish friend? What about actually getting in their lives? You know, I often say that when the synagogue shooting happened in America, Pittsburgh, I cried. I cried not because I had to cry, not because I needed to sign a letter because we can do all of that, you know, signal stuff as well. It's important. The reason I cried was because I thought, my gosh, I've been in synagogues like that. I've been in synagogues like that in America and here. I could picture, I could think, I could feel like, oh my gosh, I can picture what that must have been like. Horrendous. People in that synagogue are like my friends. It's that real connection uh, when you're then invited to a, a family wedding. This stuff is the real stuff. Like this is where you start to see each other real. And I think that the, the problem is, and I can say from a Muslim perspective, that people literally cannot get their head around it at all. They automatically see that if you're working with the Jewish community, you're a Zionist sympathizer. What even does that mean, right? And what I really want to get to, and this is where I think much more work needs to be done, can be done, and it's for people like us to do it. I want Muslims to meet people like you, Charlie, who have lived there, breathed it, understand it, you get it. You're not someone who's going to 
totally dis-Israel. Because, you know, the problem we've got is that Muslims only ever gravitate towards <laughs> the people in the Jewish community or others who dis-Israel, right, and talk about the politics all the time. I want people to meet people from the Jewish community who love Israel and maybe hate it at the same time for some of the other stuff, right? And be able to talk about that stuff. Those are my friends. Those are the kind of people that I have. I really want them to drop the guard and meet people and talk about stuff. And then you will be able to talk about also the difficult things. I've sat in a room before with one of my Jewish friends. And because we had been part of a program and because we were developing the friendship, there were three of us there, her myself, a Shia Muslim man, three of us, great combo, right? So we were talking and felt there was a trust. And she talked about her friend being killed by a suicide bomber on a bus. It's difficult stuff, this, right, to talk about. But I was so glad that she felt able, actually, to even say it. And we talked about it and went round that topic in a way that many people won't do. And so I think unless you get that trust built, we're not going to be able to get from where we are now to where we need to be. And so I really want people to interact more. And, you know, there's no doubt that because I'm doing it, Muslims will ask themselves, well, if she's doing it, maybe I could just give it a go. Maybe I might just zoom into that event. Maybe I might go to that synagogue iftar that's coming up maybe i might just do it and then that's when it multiplies bring it back away from israel because as you say it's so toxic <laughs> at times it's it's impossible to not have preconceived ideas before you even start talk about israel and it's it's like that argument you never talk about religion and politics because you end up losing friends but we are here talking about religion and politics and one of the things that i have coming up in my diary and i got on the invite for yesterday is that it will be the God willing, it'll be the Queen's uh, Jubilee next year again, and there'll be celebrations for it. When we do this in my area, we've always run this in, in the combined areas of Northwood and Northwood Hills, and we run it as a big event. We struggle so hard to get a Muslim involvement in it. We find it difficult to get that involvement. Have you got any suggestions? How do we get people involved from, from the whole of that side? Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating you ask that because we've seen, I've seen interesting reactions to the death of um, Prince Philip to this in terms of in the Muslim community and the relationship between the royal family and all of that is really different to what I know it is in the Jewish community in terms of prayers and all of that. So it's fascinating for me to sort of see both. I think it's always about building the relationships. I would be very happy to help you find somebody. You're always going to need to find the person who is able to kind of engage and then they will then bring other people. And, you know, this is all the good old fashioned community organizing, finding the people who are there. And I'm not sure why people don't get involved in certain things. They'll have their own ideas, thoughts, misconceptions, whatever. But I'd be very happy to try and help you find someone because there will be people, of course there will, especially something like that, which will be a very much a, a communal uh, celebration, that there are people who are completely on board with all of that and would want to get involved, I'm sure. I'll, we'll try and find you some nice I think Muslims it's not in your me. area. <laughs> find me some nice Muslims. I, I think it's not just about my own. I know. I think I know. it's just, I just sometimes wonder because everybody I know who's who I, I deal with, uh, I've got 
some great Sikh friends. I've got some great Muslim friends. It's just sometimes with the community, I found we found this all the time, you know, in our, our local residence association. Don't know why, you know, the door is open and it just, there's something we're not saying that, and, and no. I, I think it's us not being open enough, but how you do that. Can I just interject? Because Julie, can I just say, listening to you is really inspirational. I'm kind of on the, involved on the fringes of a local Nissa Nashim group. And I went to the Nissa Nashim conference back in 2019, I think it would have been, um, which I, I think is an incredible organisation. What you were saying about the friendship and creating the friendship and the trust before anything else, and that being the way in, I don't like kind of doing the whole sort of gendered leadership thing. I don't like going you know, this is how women do it and this is how men do it. But all I could think about is that is a female way to lead. And linking it back to Leo's question and what Leo's saying about community organising and struggling to get people involved, I just think there's a connection there about doing it a different way, building trust and building friendship. And on top of that, then you can approach the difficult issues and the controversies and stuff like that, rather than going straight in. And I don't know if you if you agree and what you think about that, but there's yeah, definitely yeah. something there about the role of the female in leadership, which yeah, is not sure. the sort of thing I would normally say, I have to admit. <laughs> I've got Muslim friends who are, they would call themselves liberal, right? Liberal Muslims yeah. who don't like talking about the gender stuff either, because it's almost like, why are you doing women only stuff? they will say yeah. to me because that's going backwards we don't need to do that so there's always that sense and I find that fascinating as well I think there is something very powerful about working together as women the Sinashim has proven that we're doing it differently and it is just different yeah. you know we're thinking yeah. differently ch changing the game in that sense linking it back to community organizing of course we still very much suffer from Muslim, the Muslim community does, you know, the male gatekeeper model. And so I get frustrated when I hear people saying to me, and I heard it again a couple of days ago was somewhere in the Midlands, the Muslim guy representative who sits on as a chaplain, as a sacre, as a this, as a that, all the things that he sits on, he's not the right person, like full stop. <laughs> he just isn't the right person. But for some reason, Every single other people in all of those bodies haven't called it out and put someone else in his place. And I saw it happen in my local area as well. I went to a board and I thought, why have you got him here? Not being rude. He knows nothing about this topic. He never comes to the meetings, but he's occupying a space that I'd rather have someone else in, men or women or whoever the best person is for it. This kind of gatekeeper respect for the elder thingy. We've still got that going on, unfortunately. We have as well. And first, I want to echo what Rebecca said. I found it really emotional hearing from you, not just inspiring, but also hit something very deep in me because it's about recognising somebody else's experience and the vulnerability that comes with sharing those experiences. And I think that's where fem female leadership can come in. I don't think we always do it, actually. I think sometimes we fall into a trap of replicating other models of leadership, which then in turn exclude other women. But I think potentially we have this opportunity through women's leadership of raising up other voices. And Julie talked about talk, taking up space. It's recognizing that somebody else can do the job, that actually somebody else's empowerment is not my own 
disempowerment. Mm. And to, to share that space, I think we have such a responsibility of female leadership. That's why I love when in liberal Judaism, we do things like this, where we have three voices and a guest, right? We don't have just the one-on-one. We try and say, and it's it's a battle, right? It's it, And a battle in sometimes a good way and sometimes a, a negative way because sharing space is really hard. And it means that it increases tensions because you do have to build the trust in order to have it. And there is so much distrust that it's going to take a long time too. But hearing you speak and echoing that model, I think has got to be the space for women's leadership um, as we move forward. Taking that into an area, and I may have talked about this before, when I was involved in the Scout Association, we ha- I was involved at the time when they decided to go to what they call co-educational that the membership was opened up to girls and boys in the Scout Association. The complaints, the biggest issues were from elderly male leaders who didn't like it. And funny enough, also a number of elderly female leaders who said, but they're all my little boys and I don't want girls in there. And you broke down the barriers. The young people didn't care. Actually, they did. The boys turned around afterwards and it was immediately that the girls came in. They came up, one came up and said, she's bossing me around. And it's like, yeah, and that's life. Get, Get used to it. It is a, an interesting environment. And, and as you said, Charlie, I think there's two sides to it always. There is the permission to speak, if that's the right term. But actually what people have to do is they have to listen. And sometimes a lot of people will turn around and say, yeah, yeah, we'll have a female person, but they don't listen. That is the bigger problem is they sort of say, oh, well, we've made this women's area and then we're allowing women to hin here. But then they just shut down their listening of what they are actually saying. And when they listen, like I am here, you realize that actually there is a much better voice to hear things and there's a much better way of saying things and a much more articulate and a better way to drive through things than hearing the same old same old male voice can i just ask leo a quick question because i I was kind of thinking about what i really loved about what julie was saying about this idea of building the friendship and the trust first before you kind of encounter the difficult issues and i sort of said i thought that was a very female way to lead does it have to be a female way to lead could you also encourage men to to lead in that way and to develop a different kind of side of themselves? Is that possible or am I just being very naive to think that that's something that could it's kind of coming back to the we were talking with oj um in the last episode about how we're raising our sons. Should we be raising our sons to also lead? in way that up until now we might be describing as being more female, but actually just different. In my mind, you know, it's not like this is the right way of doing it and that's the right way of doing it forever and ever and ever and we've now corrected and solved a problem because it doesn't work that way. I think everything that we do is about saying this is what worked at the time and moving it forward. And I, I think in to answer your question, Rebecca, there are better ways of doing things, but the better ways are only found out once you've actually worked out where you are at the moment. And I think it's always going to change. It's really fascinating, you know, what Julie is talking about and where women and how their involvement in Islam and how that's changing. I'm not sure, and I'm, this could be unpacked in hours, uh, where you are in respect to female uh, imams and how that's going to come about or not. And I maybe we haven't got long enough to discuss that. But we have this issue and we're seeing it. There is an acceptance. 
in this country, we've had two really long ruling queens. Up until that point, in general, it was always men, 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 men. And we've realised that actually you don't need to do things that way. Or you don't let women in because once they're in, they're never going to let go, whichever way you want to see it. Absolutely. I think I think it's right. Uh, Germany is another prime example, the long, think longest running chancellor. It's great, but it proves that actually the reality is that strong people can do things regardless gender is not the barrier mm. of the decision of why people do something it's about style it's about leadership style and we can make the simplistic and I, I did it myself we make the simplistic you know statement that leading on trust and friendship is a very female thing and being you know strong and kind of adamant and stubborn is a male thing now we all know that that's not necessarily the case if you look at some of the strong leaders Margaret Thatcher being an obvious one you know she wasn't building things on friendship and trust and all of those kind of so-called female qualities but I sometimes wonder, and this is exactly going back to something Julie said earlier about the you know, the attacks come from inside. The attacks come, from, you know, the Muslims attack Muslims, Jews attack Jews. The number of times I've seen that women attack women in power yeah. is surprising. You would have thought that they are supporting and actually they don't. Look, we're shaped by our experience, same way as we're yep. shaped by, yep. you know, the world we grow up in as women. I am shaped by my experiences. And we talked about that with OJ very much, that our reactions are shaped by our lived experience. Julie is inspirational for a, a million of reasons, but none less because actually she is modelling a way. Sorry, I'm talking mm. as though you're not here, Julie. You are. <laughs> modelling a way of being a woman within a Muslim community which allows replication and presumably your son are also seeing a way as well as your daughter seeing a way of being a Muslim woman and you're not shying away from either being a Muslim or from being a woman and you're taking those or a mother actually and taking those experiences with you. I know that when I first became a mum one of the things I was really you know I, I thought while I was pregnant was I'm not going to bring, you know, my motherhood into the synagogue. I'm not going to be a rabbi and a mother. And actually the opposite became absolutely the truth. You know, my, my kids were breastfed on the bimah and that became part of my rabbinate. Now I couldn't escape from either that being a rabbi was part of informing my motherhood, nor that my motherhood didn't inform my rabbinate. Those lived experiences and modelling those experiences will shape the next generation. So I think it, you're right that you can't say it, it's a female female way of leading or a male way of leading or being a woman or being a man but we nevertheless have been shaped by our gendered experiences. I think some of the most empowering work for me over the last few years has been working with women from different faiths and figuring out and the sort of light bulb moments that have happened on a number of occasions where you realise, wow, we really are in this together. I remember going to an event, very fancy thing in London somewhere, and the speakers, Chief Rabbi, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Sheikh Tim Winter from Cambridge, they were talking about leadership. And I could feel myself thinking, you literally have not mentioned anything about gender or the issues or whatever. And so I put my hand up and asked the question directly to them. They fudged the answer, frankly, all of them did it, especially they put Tim Winter up, which I didn't expect that. It doesn't need to be. And he then fudged the answer. He taught me at Cambridge, by the way. Great guy, but he fudged that answer. I remember that event. Afterwards, Archbishop Justin Welby came up to me, I've met him before, and he said to me, Julie, let me just say one thing. 
based on the fact that he knew the answer was fudge and that my question was relevant. And he said, look, if anyone says to you that we, i.e. Church of England, has this sorted, i.e. gender and faith, we don't. 2,000 years later, he said to me, we're still trying to figure it out. That's the reality, right? And, you know, even in the within the Jewish communities, the talk of modern Orthodox, how that all plays out. When I met women from that part of the community who are feminists, challenging stuff on the inside, that stuff for me has been fascinating. And then meeting, you know, women rabbis and how does that play out in our community? What's going to happen with that? You know, that stuff has been, for me, I would say some of the most empowering, exciting work with so much more potential that we can do together because there's something about doing it together. It takes away the pressure, I guess, as well for me. This is not just a Muslim thing. You see, over the last 20 years, we've had this narrative, the poor Muslim women that need saving from themselves. You know, we've bombed a country because of that narrative, right? Let's just be honest about it. Actually, we as Muslim women don't want you to think like that. Please don't mm. be patronizing about Muslim women. <laughs> like we are not that. That narrative that has been created is not helpful. We have a voice. Our faith is very clear about equality. We just need it to be put into practice. We need to work alongside each other. And when we call out the bad stuff in our community, like I am doing with the mosques. Don't put it on the front of the, let's say, right-wing press and say, look at all these bad Muslims and what they're doing in their mosques. Be real and honest about the fact that inequality, you know, two women die a week in this country from being killed by a partner. Inequality is an issue for all of us. We have our specific issues. As Muslim women, we're going to deal with that stuff. So let's be on the path together rather than thinking the poor Muslim women, let's pat them all on the head and save them from themselves. We don't need that. What a moment to bring the podcast part of this to a close. Julie, one thing we always do when we have guests on this show is ask them what they're watching, reading. And given that you put me through that when uh, I was on your uh, Thrive, I felt totally not guilty about asking you. What is it that, aside from being very busy on the political activism scene, what are you reading, watching in your sort of spare time? Okay, so two things literally came to mind because I had no idea you were going to ask me that. One was I just ordered the book, The 5am Club, because I've started getting up early in the mornings and um, purposefully getting up even earlier in the mornings. And I am really interested in that whole concept of mm. doing loads of good stuff in the mornings. I love podcasts on those um, issues as well. But it's actually Ramadan for me. So second day of fasting today. And so I guess I should say I'm reading the Quran, which I am. <laughs> and the Ramadan, while we are fasting for about 17 hours a day, we are also connect with the Quran very much. It's a communal time of the year for us, 30 days, but actually it's very personal as well. So it's very much about going inwards, reconnecting with yourself and with God and the Quran. It's the, it's the month of the Quran. So I'm rereading the Quran again in different ways, deeper, longer, giving it more focus. And I'm loving that already. Is there something we should wish you over the month of Ramadan? No, well, someone actually for the first time wished me Ramadan Samir the other day. So that was really cool. Was a, rabbi, a, a rabbi and his wife, they sent me a lovely little video. First time anyone's ever said that. But yeah, so that's all good. But Ramadan Mubarak or Ramadan Kareem is normally what people say. Ramadan Kareem. I quite like Ramadan Samir. I think we should yeah, make exactly. that a thing, right? I, it as well. I thought, wow, I've not heard that before. It's great. I just like it the same way as you hear the Tov Yala 
lullaby. Let's just put it all together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I was also thinking about, we often say to people on Yom Kippur, which is like the main Jewish fast fest that we say, wish you well over the fast. Yeah. That's quite um, yeah. a, a that's long quite, that's, also, that's nice as well. That's good. I'll take that. We need all the help we can get sometimes, 30 days of it. It's all good. So I watched the third series of Schitzel and it is perfect television, just beautiful. I I'm bereft that I finished it. But I also watched RBG, which is on Netflix about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, and really? uh, Julie, you, you <laughs> mentioned Gloria, Gloria Steinem yeah, yeah, earlier. Yeah. And she's uh, one of the kind of talking heads um, on the on the show. She looks fabulous. But very good. Yeah, really, really good documentary on RBG. So recommend oh, that. Good reminder. Good reminder. So I'm going to talk completely in this area about male things in respect to the fact that my football team, um, by the time this podcast comes out, probably will either have completely and utterly mucked up promotion or should have been promoted. Um, oh. I'm pretty sure they will be. You never know. You A never tentative know, so. mazel tov in advance then, Leah. Uh, no, no, not for that. No, no, it's no. It's not no, just no, a male no. thing. They're my football team too. Yeah, so it's Watford. It's Watford. They're, uh, we're down to the last couple of games of the season and they just literally need to win two more games. You know, it's one of those things where you do all the permutations, you look at all this stuff and we do it in everything in our walks of life. It's like when you're preparing for a speech or you're preparing you think of all the questions they're going to ask. I don't understand how come every single time you ever do those preparations, the thing you didn't think about is the one that get, that comes out. Uh, you know, you've you've planned and planned, planned it. Uh, we we have a Jewish proverb about it, obviously, which is man, man plans and God, God laughs. I want to say a great big thank you to Julie for being mm. with us today. Just a fabulous guest as Amazing. always. And Julie, can you tell people if they do want to find you on social media for only good things, where can they find you? Yeah, so mainly on Facebook, Julie Siddiqui, Instagram, Julie Siddiqui, and the website togetherwethrive.co.uk. I'd love to hear from people. And Rebecca, if they want to find you, where can they find you? So I am on Twitter at R Singerman or at Kingston Lib Shawl. If you want to see photos of my garden, they're all on Instagram and that's just Rebecca Singerman. Thanks, Rebecca. And Leo, when you get your head out of the football and you are on social media, where will you be? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter as WFC Kigo and now you know where the WFC comes from. You can find me on other platforms as well. I'm mainly on on uh, Facebook and you, finally Charlie where can they uh, find loads and loads and loads of Rabbi Charlie they can find me thinking politically and verbally on Twitter Rab Charlie and if you want to see photos of my children and puppy then that is on Facebook as Charlie Beginsky thank you again everybody and we will see you again very very soon Thank you all and goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye.